Osiris. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This week on the show, let's take a little sonic trip to the northern corner of Alabama, where I'll speak with two singing sibling songwriters and master harmonizers, Laura and Lydia Rogers, who for the last decade have recorded under the name The Secret Sisters. Though there is nothing hidden about the fact that like true sisters, their voices, and dare I say their minds, seem to converge like the dusky waters of Wheeler and Wilson Lake above the tiny town where they were born. And maybe, maybe there is something in the water down there, in that area we know as the musical crucible of American rock rock and roll, soul, funk, and folk music. I'm talking, of course, about Muscle Shoals, a once fertile and hotly contested Cherokee riverfront hunting ground for thousands of years. It's just a stone's throw from the Tennessee and Mississippi borders, where in a little parking lot off East Avalon Avenue, you could find Fame Studios, where a scruffy genius named Rick Hall would somehow convince Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, the Allman Brothers, and more to come down and make music in this backwater and help them create a sound that had never been heard before. But that's not all. Just up the road in Sheffield, Alabama, the greasy great house band The Swampers would cram into the Muscle Shoals Sound Studio to play with Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, The Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart. You may ask yourself, of all places on Spaceship Earth, why do the greats of past and present continue to find their way to Muscle Shoals, Alabama? Maybe there is something in that fertile soil that sticks to your shoes as you walk in the studio door. And I'm not saying this all seeped into little Laura and Lydia somehow as they begin singing in church and with their dad in the den during family gatherings, but in a way, an unfiltered current of a certain type of soul-dipped country music has been flowing in the Secret Sisters from the very beginning. Before they were stardust in their mother's eyes, their grandfather was touring around with his brothers in a group called the Happy Valley Boys, playing bluegrass. And since 2010, when they broke through with their warmly vintage, vocally entwined self-titled record, the Secret Sisters have made music their life, touring the festival, theater, and club circuit on multiple continents relentlessly, while recording with the who's who of Americana royalty, like Dave Cobb and T-Bone Burnett. From an outside perspective, it would seem that Lydia and Laura would have it made in the shade. They got signed to a major label making harmony folk music from the very beginning, and yet their burgeoning career took a dark turn very early on. And what I love about these ladies is how open they are about the trials and tribulations they've had to push through to get where they are now. And you know what? They do not hold back. After breaking free of a major label hell, which sidelined and nearly bankrupted them for a time, the sisters regrouped with a vengeance and created their most personal and pop-forward work yet in the heartstring-pulling You Don't Own Me Anymore from 2017 and 2020's fiery Saturn Return, an incredible album which I hope you listen to immediately after this podcast is done. Both were made with their friend and producer Brandy Carlisle, and both were nominated for a Grammy. It's amazing how the last year or so has felt like an entire decade onto itself. And the last few years have been challenging in more ways than one for Lydia and Laura. And right as their newest record dropped and the pandemic reared its head, they each became new moms. And with Brandy Carlisle's knowing nudge, they began to sing their own lead pieces, courageously facing the uncomfortable truths about being working mothers in today's Southern society, calling out the double standards and sexual politics rife in the music industry, and showcasing their very different experiences as young women creating music right now. Country music used to have a conscience. Johnny Cash used to dress in black to remind people of the struggle and sadness that folks stuck in poverty face every day. And in their own way, Laura and Lydia are helping shape a new wave of country music that is finally really saying something. 
I'm so honored I could talk to these ladies. Uh, indeed, each of their albums have been bringing me light and joy for many years. And though I am amazed to see their individual experiences being highlighted, the true beauty of Saturn Return may be how Laura and Lydia can split off into new territory and then return together with their chills-inducing harmonies, as only real sisters could. Stick around to the end of the episode for an intimate acoustic performance from their home studio of Nowhere Baby. Anyway, I'm so glad that you're here sharing this music with me. If you can, go on our Instagram Show on the Road podcast where you can see videos of the Secret Sisters talking about their upbringing and how their music came to be. And if you leave us a kind review on iTunes, I might read it here on the air. That's it for me. Thank you for listening, folks. Here they are now, Lydia and Laura of the Secret Sisters. I'm a voyager into the ether I look for the songs in the dark Unafraid of the strong magnetism Of the pain that leaves permanent marks I dream of a raging ocean And the ship that is tossed on the waves And the wreckage I find on the shoreline And what's left of the one So we are the Secret Sisters. We are a singing sister duo from um, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Been doing this for about 10 years now. Yeah, Yeah. just put out our fourth record and we are not on tour, so you cannot come see us. (laughs) Don't even try. (laughs) Don't even try. (laughs) Yeah, this is a rare Friday evening taping. It's would never happen in real life. Well, Friday evening is no different than Monday morning or not in our other, world. Any other time of day. <laughs> Especially being new moms, right? It's uh it's all babies all the time. Yeah, it's all so the true. time. It all they, runs together. They don't know days or, you know, anything like that. Is there a baby that's more well behaved than the other? One is a little more mischievous, my my little boy. Griffin. Yeah, Lydia's little boy is very passionate and dramatic, and everything is a very big deal. Um, my little boy is a little more um, sensitive, sensitive and tender-hearted, which is the opposite of what we are. So I feel like, based <laughs> on my spirit, I should have gotten a very cantankerous, <laughs> opinionated baby, but I didn't. So, but I did. <laughs> But he's wonderful. Yeah. You, you can't send him yeah, back. Yeah, you get exactly what you need. <laughs> when did you guys start singing together as kids? Uh, we never sang together as kids in front of an audience. We only ever sang um, in our living room with our dad or on family road trips or at family reunions. Yeah. Laura was actually really um, quite a timid singer growing up, so she didn't really ever perform. Um, I was the one who kind of... Did the 4-H talent shows and the high school, you know, talent shows and things like that. So we never really sang together as kids outside of church and uh, family yeah. I mean, it was kind of just this, like, weird little, like, family thing that we did very intrinsically. Not ever for anything other than just our own, you know, to pass the time for our own entertainment. Yeah. So there wasn't ever, like, you know, a starting point where we were like, this is fun, let's do it. It was just like... We, you know, we were pretty close in age, and so growing up, it was just like, we're in a musical family, everybody likes to sing, everybody, you know, does it just for fun, and yeah, so there wasn't ever just like one specific kind of, you know, aha moment for us, but yeah, never, never really thought that it would turn into, you know, what we do now, so that's kind of another weird life (laughs) curveball. Well, you mentioned in that uh, wonderful commentary that you did with Brandy Carlisle, who, you know, helped bring your last two records into the universe, um, that there was a lot in this new record, Saturn Return, that dealt with the push and pull of family versus career and ambition and trying to wrestle with uh, the idea that maybe you had sacrificed a lot of your uh, early life to become something that maybe you didn't even realize you wanted to be and that maybe was it too late to be a mom? And I know, you know, it was a bit of a struggle at times. Um, now that you're on the other side of that and you are uh, doing it all, maybe that's impossible, but do you feel like you've 
crossed some sort of uh, gauntlet that you realize that you can be a mom and a great artist at the same time? Uh, I don't think we've had the chance, if I'm honest. Yeah, I was um, going to say the same thing. We, so our, our babies are still really small. Mm-hmm. My kid's a year old and Laura's is a year and a half. Yeah. So um, when we were supposed to go out on the road for the first time was March of this year. Mm-hmm. With um, babies with, in tow. Yeah, with the babies. Um, and all of the previous year we had been on maternity leave or been pregnant. Um, so yeah, we were going to get to test that out in March and bring them on the road and, and the whole thing. But obviously that changed. Um, so I think that is something we're going to have to figure out going forward. And I know that we can, and it's just, it's, it's going to be a challenge for sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, there are so many different kind of facets of what it means to be, you know, a successful artist. And, and we definitely have put all of our energy in the last few years into just touring and, you know, make a record and then tour the, you know, tour the crap out of it. Um, But now I think that we are even having to redefine what success is to us. And, And I think a lot of artists are just because of the fact that we can't actually really play, you know, the same amount of shows. But I think for us, like we're really still struggling to figure out the balance between how to have, you know, time to think about song inspiration. And and so many people are like, oh, I bet you have so much song inspiration now that you have a kid. I'm like, I have none. Like, I But it's not because I don't have inspiration. It's that I don't have time or mental space to like get it down, sit down and think about it, you know. And so that has been the biggest challenge for us in motherhood is, you know, finding that kind of space to create and get away, you know, from the just daily, you know, motherhood thing. So, um, is mom brain real? So incredibly real. Yeah. Yeah. It's super real. But I do think that, you know, Lydia made a good point a couple weeks ago. She was like, I feel like when I do get like a window of time where I can work on songs, I feel like I'm so much more efficient. Like it used to be that we would just like drag it out because we had the luxury of just, you know, unlimited time. And now it's like, oh, we've been working for 15 minutes. Let's have a snack break. (laughs) Yeah. Now it's like, you've got two hours. And if you really want to like, feel like you've accomplished something, you really need to like focus if possible. But you know, it's all just a phase. I think that that's been the hardest part for me is reminding myself that, you know, yes, right now I don't have just like a, a lot of time to kind of be the creative person that I once was, but Pretty soon my kid will be, you know, going to preschool or going to play with his friends and I'll have, you know, a little more kind of space. I mean, I think you guys uh, delve into a subject that a lot of uh, people maybe don't want to talk about. um, And a lot of artists in their 30s, mid 30s, late 30s, early 40s are dealing with behind closed doors, which is the struggle to get pregnant, you know, and that you feel like everyone else around you – is moving on with their lives. And especially you, you know, being from the South, you know, you always see those maps every year. And I find it hard to believe of the average age for motherhood. Right. And in like LA and San Francisco, it's like 38. <laughs> yeah. And in Alabama, it's 22. <laughs> yeah. And that song, that song late bloomer, you know, talks about, um, having it be the right time when you bloom and not because you have to do it at some point in your life. And tell me about that, that moment where you were watching those hummingbirds come outside your window at the piano. Cause I love that story. Yeah. I was, um, literally sitting at the piano. It was September. Um, and I had had my hummingbird feeder out on my porch since April of that year, because everyone had told me, you know, that's when they are, that's when they show up in Birmingham. Um, so I had had, I'd kept filling it up every month and saw no hummingbirds until September. Um, and then I was looking at my trees and noticed that the magnolias on my trees were just now starting to, to bloom. Um, so it was just, it felt like everything was happening late in the year that year. Um, and it was just a, a good fuel, a good inspiration for how I was feeling at that time when I was, I think I had been trying for almost a year to get pregnant. Um, and it it just, it was a a nice reminder and I wanted to get it down. It's pretty self-explanatory, but, um, but I think too, like 
one of my favorite things about that song, which again, you know, I, I don't really, I didn't have fertility struggles, but um, one of the things that I love about that song is that it is so incredibly intimate and it's so personal, you know, to talk about having that struggle. Um, but yet I feel like that song is so appropriate to literally so many people in so many different ways. It's like, even if fertility is the last thing on your mind, like we all have that moment of, you know, I've been touring and making records since I was, you know, however old I should be further along than I am now. You because know? this person is the same age as me and, and they have they're, this. It's they're like, over here. Yeah, so, it's yeah. that comparison game that we all are guilty of and we try not to do no matter how we, you know, it, it happens. We try not to, but we all compare, you know, our comrades and, and peers and people that we're genuinely happy for. It's, you know, you can be genuinely happy for someone but still think like, oh man, like why, why hasn't such and such happened for me yet you know why have I not had a kid yet why have I not gotten married why have I not you know found a successful level place in the music business if there is such a thing (laughs) and it's so true like you said especially in the south where the pressure is a little more present Mm. um to be married and have a kid um but I'm thankful that Mm -hmm. we were put into this music business because we have come into people from all walks of life who um, get married at 40 or don't decide not to have kids. And that's that was a good um, inspiration for us to uh, yeah, not put forge, a timeline yeah, on And ourselves. forge your own path and not live by societal standards wherever you are. Yeah. Sugar water to the brim They told me it'd be spring other side of that coin is the opening track silver you know where you have the honoring of women uh who are the matriarchs of our society who maybe are being forgotten and wearing that silver hair as a saintly crown um and i think it takes someone like brandy carlisle um to really validate sort of the the female force in our society and obviously the high women and and all that you know sort of lady fierce power that's happening right now i think that um joining forces with you over these last two records is is a gift to all of us honestly but uh tell us about working with her and what that was like oh uh we've we've known her for i guess 10 years now well almost 10 years we our first tour was 2011 um and ever since then, she's just kind of been this um, older sister figure mentor to us. Um, she is obviously so confident and so talented. And she noticed that we were less confident and felt like we were less, less, you <laughs> talented. know, talented and, and worthy. Um, and she, from the get go, made us feel like we were both of those things. Um, so... I mean, it's it's just an honor. We're still starstruck to this day every time we're around her because there's so much respect and admiration. Um, but yeah, we worked with her on our last two records and they were both just in, incredible experiences. Um, and they were both really different experiences. The third record was um, uh, at a studio called Bear Creek outside of Seattle. And uh, then the fourth record we did at Brandy's house outside of Seattle as well. 
but yeah, just really great experiences in, in every way. Well, you have that line in silver that, you know, you look at your mother and your grandmother and wonder how they kept their sanity. Has your relationship with your mother changed since you became moms? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We have a lot more grace with each other. Um, and it makes you realize what they have to deal with. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's so much you, you just don't realize until, until you're a parent yourself. Um, so we definitely have a lot more respect yeah, motherhood um, is motherhood is hard, you know. I mean, I've always known that my mother valued and cherished us, but until I had my own little boy, it's like, holy cow, I can't believe you love me in the same way that I love my son, you know, because I am not nearly as cute and wonderful as he is. <laughs> Maybe at one time I was, but not anymore. It was a long time ago. <laughs> your folks do for a living when you're growing up? So our dad uh, has been a, he's a, a chemist. Yeah, he's a chemist. He does like water treatment, but he's also a really talented um, musician. So he's got kind of the scientific brain and the creative brain. And our mom was the office manager of the local health department. So um, she worked there since she was like out of high school and worked there until she retired. And she retired at like 45 or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like middle class, you know, Southern parents that just worked hard to make ends meet and, you know, their kids really loved them and still do. <laughs> well, the concept of Saturn return, uh, for folks who don't know, it's sort of this idea of these cycles of life. Um, person leaves youth behind and enters adulthood. Then the second return is when they become a mature adult. And the third is when they, uh, the final return when they're an old elder statesman and they start to fade away, you know, yeah. where do you think you're going to be when you're in the final Saturn return when you're old ladies? Hmm. Um, I'm working real, real hard on being a grandmother and I've almost achieved the goal. Like I don't have any grandchildren yet, but I've like, I have the mentality, the mentality, the lifestyle, the habits, the, the mindset of a grandmother. I am like, yeah. Can't you just skip ahead? I feel like I'm kind of there. Like I love an early bedtime. I love to like get mad at people who are like on my property who shouldn't be. And I yell at them. You've become an avid farmer. Yeah. I love like farming and preserving food. And like, I wish I knew how to like milk a cow. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm, it's hard to envision being old. Maybe because I just feel so decrepit right now. We already feel old. At 34, I already feel like I've got one foot in the grave. Do you think you're always, always going to stay in the South? I think I probably will. I'm, I, I find that I just become, I don't know. There's something really kind of connected for me geographically. I love traveling and seeing, you know, beautiful places, but It's like I come back to the South and I just like ground myself again. It's like, okay, I know who I am. I know what matters to me. I know what people matter to me. She's an Enneagram six, if you know anything about this. I am. My wife knows what that is, but I'll look it up afterwards. I'm a creature of comfort and safety and schedule. And I like to be able to predict and plan. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, you're lyrics and a lot of your viewpoints for Southern artists do come in contrast with a lot of the people around you, some of the people in your own family that you have to fight against. And, uh, you know, look, the title track of the previous record, You Don't Own Me Anymore, right, is sort of a shots fired uh, call. You know, you have this sort of creeping stomp of that song basically telling this person most likely a man, that <laughs> I've learned my lesson that love is not possession, you know? Yeah. When yeah. did that, when did that song and that concept um, come to you? 
and was it part of the Me Too movement revelations? I don't feel I feel like that was that song was written kind of before before the Me Too movement was really kind of like in its height. Yeah, at at its height and kind of like the hot topic of the day. Um we wrote that when we let our manager go. Our first manager. Um, yeah. who was a man. Shocker. Yeah. yeah. Did not uh, it didn't end well. Didn't it was end well. A he, very nasty business separation. Got very legal. Yeah. Um, it, it basically ruined us. It sent us into bankruptcy and um that was you know, like six or seven years ago and we're still dealing with Yeah, we can't um, get credit cards. Yeah, still dealing with the fallout. I'm thirty four and I have to have a cosigner on a loan just because of that one um, you know, bankruptcy that he kind of forced us into. And, and that's, you know, that's not blown out of proportion. That's just the truth of what happened. But um, yeah, we wrote that song about, you know, that situation, but we wanted to make it, obviously not everyone that listens to our music is going to understand, you know, a tense relationship between a artist and manager. And that's such a like icky, it's just icky, you know, to kind of talk about the business sometimes. But we wanted to make it more, you know, broad. Yeah, more broad, broad strokes so that other people could kind of relate to it. And so we obviously made it about a love romance relationship. But yeah, at the end of the day, it was about, you know, just our kind of tendency to claim ownership of people, especially um, in an industry where it seems like it's pretty easy for male, you know, figures of power to kind of assume like I discovered you so you're my band you know yeah, and I think especially at that time early in our career we we felt like we were owned which yeah. is so backwards you know yeah. your manager is supposed to work for you and and everyone around you is working for you but we felt like employees um, and so we postured ourselves as employees yeah. we postured ourselves as possessions. yeah as possessions and you know I remember moments in the early days and I think you know now I would never stand for this but I remember having phone calls with our manager where he would be like I mean giving me down the road about some outfit that I had worn to a festival that didn't like fit the look that he thought I should have I remember like one specific time I had just gone through this like horrible breakup and then the weekend after my breakup we had played a festival in Arkansas and I decided not to wear a dress to the show in the middle of a field in this like dust storm and he called me and was like giving me this you know kind of sermon about how I should have worn a dress like I didn't look like a, a secret sister you look like you were wearing a t-shirt from Target and I'm like sobbing hysterically because my heart is broken and he's like coming down on me about my outfit like dude like come on man and I just remember like yeah. I remember thinking like I don't think it's okay for you to do this but it took kind of years and years of just like learning to say, no, I deserve to be respected and I deserve to make decisions for myself, you know, and our, our work with Brandy and then just, I think, age and awareness of kind of our own inherent worth and power helped us get to the point where now if a person, any person said, you know, you shouldn't wear that at your show, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wear it and I'm going to take pictures wearing it. Yeah. <laughs> You don't own me anymore What am I still fighting for? You don't own me anymore Why am I still crying? You gotta Well, also, I think this this era that we're in right now may be the first time that musicians are taking full ownership of their uh, intellectual property as something that's valuable and is an asset uh, and an investment that maybe 10, 20 years from now, uh, a song like He's Fine, you know, which I can't get enough of. It's on all my favorite playlists. That's something that is like a piece of jewelry you know it's like it's a piece of van gogh painting you know like that's something that is yours and the fact that up until recently a lot of songwriters didn't even know they 
really should be careful about who owns their publishing and who owns the rights to their albums and how the licensing works. Um, you know, that's something that is good and then it's happening. But even so, you know, two people like you are a cautionary tale for a lot of people where you got signed to a major label, right? You had someone like T-Bone Burnett behind you. And it's like on the outside for bands like us that see you at a festival here and there, you're like, well, they're, they got it. Like they're making it. Like they're the ones we're all looking up to. And behind the scenes, you're being taken for a ride, you know, and you're, and you're very open about what happened, which is something that most people are ashamed to ever talk about. And I think it is valuable for people to know that, look, this can happen and we can come through it. Mm-hmm. And you're just as strong, if not way stronger now than you were before, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as hard as that season of our career was, you know, our third record and fourth record would not be even close to what they are emotionally. I don't think that we would have, Mm-mm. you know, kind of been given the same momentum if it hadn't been for that really just terrible, you know, ordeal. And it kind of, in a way, I think that once we started being brave enough to talk about what we went through, you know, our business woes, you know, that's not something I feel like fans really, I don't think that a lot of fans really care to hear about that. And I don't think that they necessarily understand how, traumatic that is but I do think that artists do so I feel like Mm -hmm. us talking about it and being very honest about what happened really kind of helped other artists to be like you know what that is awful like that's awful and I could see how bad it would be and I can sympathize with what all the fallout would be of that and I think in a way it it really felt like once we shared our story that the industry was like rooting for us you know in a way that um, was really redemptive. It felt like a lot of people understood what went down and they were like, no, you know what? You were just two, you know, creative people who were just trying to get, you know, to, to make sure that you could pay your tiny little Alabama mortgage and you got taken for a ride by, you know, very rich by, yeah, people who don't necessarily even need you at all, but they're spiteful. And so, you know, thankfully we've reached a point where we can look at that kind of dark cloud in a way that is grateful and healed and not, you know, vengeful or spiteful. And also kind of necessary for, yeah, for our story and and who we are now. Like writing my mortgage check every month. I'll never take that for granted again because there was a time when I couldn't do that, you know? So. And the empathy that you guys now have on a deeper level for people like uh, the friend you wrote about in the song Fair, you know, who grew up, in this very hard scrabble situation, the trailer across uh, the road. And, you know, they didn't have a loving family looking after them. There was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of drugs and that you now, I think you can feel maybe that fear of losing everything and having to be on your own, you know, and that song, you can feel the like pain and the empathy in it, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think the situation we went through was it made all of that so much more clear. Um, people who have had it rough growing up. And I think this year made it even more clear to us um, that it can all be taken away so quickly um, and to not put yourself on a pedestal because it could have easily been you and to cherish and be grateful for what you do have because it was just re- literally just luck of the draw for you to be born the way you were, where you were born and, and how you were born. Yeah, so into the family that you were born into. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I don't ever want to lose that, you know, what is the best and worst thing about being from Alabama where you're from? <laughs> the best thing about Alabama for me, if you take away like the fact that our family is here and we're really family oriented people, um, I just really, I like kind of what we're good at, you know? I like that we are a a mostly kind, you know, if you step away from kind of, you know, the media and kind of the, you know, stereotypes and you really just interact with real native Alabamans, I think that for the most part, we are very kind and we are very um, generous and we are always willing to kind of just 
whatever you need, like you can get it from us, you know, like we'll help you if you need it. Um, and I like the fact that it's really cheap to live here. <laughs> my mortgage for my house and, and I live on about 10 acres of land is $375. Stop it. Stop. Yeah, I know. But, you know. And I bet you have like five bathrooms too. No, I don't. I actually have a, a very small house, but a lot of land. So that's, you know, whatever. Well, you are a farmer now. I am a farmer. a farmer. I have to have, I have to have real estate. So she thinks the world's about to end. So. I do. I'm, I've become a doomsday prepper in, in the pandemic, I'm afraid. So. What was the reaction in Muscle Shoals when uh, Biden was proclaimed the next president? Uh, not good, I don't think. I don't really feel... I haven't been paying attention, honestly. I think that we both, like, very, very happily kind of just stepped away um, because, you know, we knew it was going to be, like, icky no matter what the outcome was. You know, it was it was going to be icky either way. Well, I live in Birmingham, so it's a primarily kind of Democratic-leaning um, county. So I didn't I didn't see a whole lot of what happened in the shoals, but I would imagine they were not happy. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see any like protests. I don't hear about any sort of like protest or anything. But then again, I live in the country in my little bunker, <laughs> hiding away from the world. <laughs> so I think this month is the 10 year anniversary of your first self-titled record. Is that right? It's true. Well, I think it actually, well, it Was came it out in October. October. Yeah. Yeah, this year marks 10 years, so uh, time to be rolling in the big bucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think your main uh, evolution has been as songwriters from that record to the new record, Saturn Return? Well, from the very first record to this one, I think just becoming songwriters at all. You know, <laughs> the first record we had two originals on that Laura wrote in college and they weren't good and they were okay um thank you so yeah i think <laughs> just just trying to become brave enough and and um confident in what we can say and that that we have something to say um so uh, yeah i think it's it, i'm really proud of the fact that we wrote every song on this latest record um and and that we are evolving and, and we're writing about what we want to write about now. Well, I think a song like Tennessee Me, right? You could feel the magic of your voices. And I think you were leading with the magic. And I think now you're leading with the fire and the ideas behind the magic. Yeah, that's a cool way to put it. Yeah. was just kind of like dipping our toe in and really and truly I think you know if we had had more time before our first record before we went into the studio to make our first record if someone had said all right we're going to give you six months to write your first record and then we're going to go into the studio I feel like we could have you know probably gotten some decent stuff out but we just literally had never written songs even we even didn't think we together. had to yeah there was no there was no reason to yeah. there was no career to write songs for and so it was like all of a sudden we were signing a record deal and going into the studio and it was like well I've never written a song before you know I've I've got these little ditties that I wrote when I was feeling emo but um yeah you know I think we definitely knew that songwriting was something that we had to get Work better at. at and I think that you know the goal is always with every record you know to put out a better batch of songs than the one before it and I think that so far, I feel like our songs have gotten stronger, yeah. but I'm never satisfied. You know, I, I and I find I find myself being like, Ugh, how does someone take something so simple and make it so beautiful? Like, because I my tendency is like, I want to overcomplicate it. And I want the words to be very like eloquent, eloquent and theatrical and poetic. And I think that there's a time and space for that. But like, then I hear songs that are like, like, we were talking about that George Jones song, It's Been a Good Year for the Roses. Like, come on. <laughs> like, it's not fair that you can take something so simple 
and make that kind of song. And the beauty is, is what is unsaid. Yeah. I can hardly bear the sight of lipstick on the cigarettes there in the ashtray. Lying cold away. Well, it's something that in country music, especially, it keeps being repolished and remade these breakup songs and heartbreak songs and a song like he's fine almost feels like a new wave jolene for me you know (laughs) where it's like you're you're looking at this person stealing the one you love and you're acknowledging that uh your heart is being broken and that you're both furious and sad but also like you're taking the time to fully explain it to everyone around you so they can see the whole picture, you know, sort of like Dolly does where, you know, she's like detailing how beautiful this woman is. Like just in case you didn't know, like she's got flaming locks of auburn hair. Don't you feel like for me, I feel like in, in songwriting, you know, I listen to these songs like Jolene or, you know, any of the kind of classic, you know, examples of wonderful songwriting. And I think like, were they very, very like strategic and like methodical about that song creation? Or was it just kind of like a strike of lightning? Like I wrote this song and it's just incredible. Like I didn't really think it through, but it just so happens to be wonderful. You know, like I sometimes think about how, how many of our heroes were very like, okay, I know right here I've got to have a killer bridge with a really clever pun, you know, like, how many of them were really kind of like taking a painstaking effort to make the song be the legendary song that it was? And how many of them were just like a stroke of luck and artistry? Like when does a song like He's Fine come? Is it come right after a breakup moment or is it something way down the line where you're processing? I feel like that was more in the moment, I feel like. Yeah, I feel like that song was just kind of spilling out, you know, just kind of head over head over feet a little bit with that song and Um, I think that's how our best songs are written the ones that are are fresh um off of a certain emotion yeah for Um, sure um I, I can't remember exactly how far out I was from that terrible breakup but um I definitely you know was able to still kind of go into that that place you know where the emotions were still really tender Davey White where is he He's sleeping with her in a Tennessee town and he's fine. I think I lost my mind and my wasted time. I'm dreaming alone in a hotel bed and he's mine. Bought a gown to match his name. Kept my virtue just the same. So I could offer to my love. songs come in a lot of different ways lately I feel like my song inspiration comes when I'm laying in the bed with my kid at night like trying to get him to sleep I'll like think of song ideas and be like don't forget it don't forget it because I can't turn my phone on and type it into my notes and I'm like just lay here and keep thinking about it keep thinking about it and then I'll like get him to sleep and run in the living room like type out my song idea but none of them are completed songs because we we typically kind of accumulate a large pile of ideas and then we get together for like a marathon of songwriting. And that's how He Is Fine came to be. We were having a, a songwriting retreat and, you know, it was one of those songs that we just were together and mm-hmm. we knew we needed something a little more high energy because all of our songs are slow and sad. So we, so wanted, we wanted one that was fast and fast sad. And sad. Pieces left behind and told I took to the hard road What is the most harrowing drive that you can remember taking? Like the longest, scariest drive to make it to a show? The more recent ones. It's always in Colorado. Colorado. Colorado can be really scary. I remember we were making the drive. I I believe we were going from Red Rocks to... We were going through Utah. Yeah, we were going to Salt Lake City because we had a show the next night with opening for Brandy yeah. at um, 
at that botanical gardens in Salt Lake City. I can't remember the name. Um, but yeah, we were driving and it was like, it was just the two of us and our tour manager, which was another female, which is fine. Like we're all, you know, strong, capable women, but we didn't have any cell service. We were like driving through the mountains. It was like desert rocks, you know, and we got a flat tire because I hit something on the road. And we pulled over and I was like, I don't freaking know how to change a tire. Like I should know these things. And so I was like getting the tire out and I was like, I'm going to have to figure it out. because <laughs> You were determined. I, know, I was like, otherwise we are not getting out of here. And this beautiful, sweet, non-English speaking Hispanic man and his sweet family pulled over in a minivan on the side of the road. And he did not understand what we were saying. And I didn't understand what he was saying, but he could tell we needed help. And he got down on that nasty ground and like changed it in no time and I was like I will literally give you every dollar of merch cash in our possession because you were so kind and he would not take it he would not take it an angel angels unaware that's what he was he was uh I'll never forget that man I wish that I could was one of the more harrowing but yeah it was super scary because it was you know we were in the middle of nowhere we didn't have our GPSs weren't working because we you know didn't have cell service mm-hmm. I think the longest stretch we did was like 10 hours in a day yeah we've, we've yeah, been we've, we've done it man we've been road dogs but I don't know nowadays I feel like I gotta set some boundaries <laughs> if if Regular people, and I I don't mean regular in a bad way, but if non-touring, just music fans understood (laughs) sometimes what it takes just to get on stage and be semi-put together, they would never believe what we have to go through. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They wouldn't mind paying $15 for a ticket. Yeah, it's just hilarious, like, because we know, like, hearing you tell that story, it's like, oh, yeah. Yep, it, it makes yeah. sense, you know, but... Who was the first... you remember the first concert you guys went to? First concert? I think mine was Reba. Um, I was four. I do remember there was a show. <laughs> I don't know if it was my very first one, but I was probably like eight or nine. And one of the Backstreet Boys, you didn't get all the Backstreet Boys, but one of the Backstreet Boys, I think it was Brian. Brian? Is Hi. that one of them? No, it wasn't Howie. Anyway, one of the Backstreet Boys did like this like acoustic show at a park in our hometown. And I went with like my friends, but it wasn't very revolutionary or anything. All right. What is the what is the best concert you think you've ever seen live? Shoot. Uh, uh, <sighs> We've been to a lot of good ones. Um, anytime I've ever seen Gillian and Dave, it's like... The power and and magic of that simplicity is so just striking to me. And it's like I have this tendency, like I said, to just like I want to just add, add, add and overcomplicate and make it big, you know, and theatrical. And it's like, no, you can literally just stand there with a banjo and a guitar and play folk music. And it's just as compelling and just as important. Yeah. Well, they have this thing that you also have where their voices are one voice, right? You can't tell who's singing what, and they complement each other in such a beautiful way that it always makes me laugh because they have their own solo projects, but they're both on both of their solo projects. It's like it's the same band, but they're just... right. Things. Yeah, it's so true. It's like there's a little more guitar soloing on Dave Rollins' machine stuff, you know? Yeah, it's so true. But you guys, you know, you guys chose to really showcase your individual lead singing on this new record, Sad in Return. How did that um, become a priority on this? It wasn't a priority for us, I don't think. I, yeah. You know, I think we went, I remember specifically when we were getting ready to go into the studio with Brandy. Lydia and I kept having these conversations about how, you know, we'd had, we'd written all of these songs for the record, but we hadn't really worked out harmony parts. We were like, what kind of harmony part are we going to put on fair? What kind of harmony part are we going to put on silver? Whatever. And, and then we get into the studio and Brandy was like, you know, I think there are some songs on this record where you just don't really need to have a super saturated harmony part. And then we're like, we're like, how are we going to do that live? We can't do that. You know, that's like, that's like, so counterintuitive for us and terrifying to sing, you know, in that kind of way because we had never done it on a record Because before. you sing differently if you're not singing harmony. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so we were admittedly a little bit hesitant about mm. that. And I, I definitely was hesitant because I just felt like, you know, I felt like I wasn't going to be any good without Lydia. <laughs> um, but yeah, Brandy just really kind of was like, you know, you've done three records already that are super harmony heavy and they're great and, and that's who you are. But, you know, it might be a good time to kind of share what you can do as individual singers. And a lot of it was because of the fact that so many of the songs on this record were very specific to us as individuals rather than a shared experience. We were in very different places. Yeah, like, you know, I had written Hold You Dear the day that I found out I was pregnant, and that was right in the middle of Lydia struggling to get pregnant. So she didn't understand all the emotion that I felt when I created that song. And so... So I wrote Late Bloomer. So Lydia wrote Late Bloomer, and I couldn't really kind of empathize with that feeling. But Brandy really kind of recognized that there were these moments that we would never have again. And she... uh you know, really pushed us to do that. And I'm, in hindsight, I'm really glad that she saw it that way because we, again, would not have done that if it had been up to us, I don't think. And I will hold you, dear While my shadow's long And my eyes are clear I know these days will pass away so I will hold you dear. But again, I think this record, in contrast to some of your earlier stuff, has a lot of fire and a lot of courage in it to cover stuff like the song Cabin, where you're, again, clear-eyed, calling out uh, the bad behavior and the um, double standard that has existed for so long. And, you know, I, I heard in the commentary that that was being written during, I think, the Kavanaugh hearings at the Supreme Court. And we just saw Ruth Bader Ginsburg immediately replaced after she died. Um, and, and again, you guys are not in L.A. or Nashville and somewhere where you're preaching to the choir. You know, you're having to say these songs with a lot of fire around people who do not agree with you. So how how do you uh, gather that courage to to speak your truth in a place that maybe doesn't uh, think that truth is valid? Somehow it's easier in a song. <laughs> um, I don't know if we would be so brave in our community, unfortunately, to to just outright say what we think. But um, when it's put into song, it's a little easier to to get that through. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think for us, you know, Cabin was kind of our first real um, songwriting foray into things that are polarizing. And I think for us, you know, we didn't write that song to be polarizing. We didn't write it to be political or, you know, any, it wasn't motivated by that. It was really kind of more like I want I want the people who hear this song regardless of where they find themselves on the political spectrum I want you to hear this song and recognize that like forget about Brett Kavanaugh forget about any of these like you know famous kind of you know people that we know and start thinking about it as just like the problem that it is you know like don't don't necessarily assign it to a specific perpetrator but assign it to just like humanity as a whole and what we do to each other when we think that we have you know superiority over someone and the way that we use that power you know to mistreat them and damage them in irreparable ways and so I think for us it was like I want to talk about this topic but I want you to see it as like it has nothing to do with our politics and everything to do with our humanity and our willingness to kind of you know, hear from people who have been victimized by something. And it shouldn't be political. And it shouldn't be political, but everything is. Everything mm. is right or left, everything. And it's just, it gets exhausting to try to, like, toe that line. And so for me, it's like, I just want to talk about the things that I feel convicted about, and I want you to see that, like, it's about human-to-human -human respect and value and not about which political party is doing the wrong thing right now, you know?
So it's hard. <laughs> it's hard and it takes bravery and, you know, and I think too, you have to be careful how you frame the stories around your songs. You know, I think that um, Lydia and I try really hard to just be, you know, tactful and respectful and, Sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes it's really hard to do. But well, I appreciate when there's people like I'm actually looking at this comment right now because I I appreciated it so much. I did a cover of George on my mind when that flipped blue, and this guy Todd was like, "I don't share your political views, but I love your music and I'll keep coming back." You know that like it's like the music is the thing that can always be the connective tissue in our country that is so diverse, you know, because it feels like Alabama and California might as well be Denmark and Colombia or something. I mean, it's such a distinct world, and yet we're all Americans, you know. That's why we need art and music more than ever right now. Um, And it's super tragic. It's it's like one of the last things that are being funded, um, which is super scary. Okay, in a dream scenario, let's say the uh, vaccine is all good, everything's back to relative normal, Mm -hmm. you guys get to throw the Secret Sisters Festival. It can be (laughs) anywhere in the world, at any location, and you can book five artists, dead or alive. Who do you start with? Oh my, come on. I'm going to say Aretha. Oh, don't take her. I want her at my festival. I'm going to say Aretha. I'm going to say Fiona Apple. Mm. Um, um, oh, I'm going to say Billie Holiday. Mm. Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, I'm literally, it's just like right off the top of my head. Um, and Bonnie Raitt. <laughs> no, they're all very different. So but. a Lilith Fair, basically, <laughs> which would be really fun. Soul Jazz Lilith Fair. Well, that's fair. Um, oh, that's so hard. I took the good ones. You you took a lot of really good ones. Um, I would love to see Queen. I would love that. I would love to see. I would love to see Led Zeppelin. I know that's really random. Lydia's that probably is like, so what? random. I've never heard no. you talk about Led Zeppelin. In anything. Come on, Robert Plant. <laughs> He's dreamy. Um, Robert Plant. I mean Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Uh, ooh, um, dead or alive, dead or alive, dead or alive. Um, Hank Williams. Same, all, all minor dudes. Everly Brothers. I would love the Everly Brothers to show up. Uh, I gotta put a girl in there. I gotta put a girl in. Who? I need a woman. I need a woman Gillian? at my festival. Yeah, Gillian Welch can come to my festival. I would I would go to that festival. All right, where's the location? Uh, oh, oh, location. My backyard. Nice. No permitting ne- necessary. No, it's super super private and uh yeah. I would do the Tennessee River like right on the banks of the Tennessee River. That would be pretty. Yeah. But I think Jason Isbell's already doing that. Yeah, he did. Yeah. All right, will you please take us out with uh one song off the new record that you would like people to hear. Of course. Yeah. I just happened to have a guitar right here. <laughs> oh my God. Where did that come from? Yeah. That's amazing. Your backdrop looks like you're in a sauna. Like it looks like you're in like, like a really nice, like wood paneled spa sauna. It's our dad's, it's our dad's studio, studio. And it really needs a remodel. Lydia, don't say that. They what? might hear this. No, I'm just saying. Yeah. It, it does look a little sauna-esque, but you know, it doesn't have loud babies screaming. So... <laughs> Which song would you like to play? We're gonna play. I think. I think. I think we're gonna play "Nowhere, Baby." Um, I feel like this kind of this song really feels like it fits in with a lot of the things that we've talked about with you. Um, I don't know. I think. I think we just both have those moments where we really feel, again, like we're not where we want to be, and 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 you're constantly trading off one thing for another. It feels like maybe you can't have everything all at once and so uh this is a song about feeling that way and it's on our new record sweet
The crowd goes wild. <laughs> Big thanks to Laura and Lydia one more time for talking with me. Uh, SecretSistersBand.com is their website. Their newest record is called Saturn Return, produced by Brandy Carlisle. And her whole band plays on this record. It is magic, I swear to God. Listen to it right now. Stop what you're doing, put it on, and enjoy. 
If you head over to our mothership, thebluegrasssituation.com, you'll see that the Secret Sisters posted a really cool acoustic video of their song, Cabin. It may be the most powerful song on this record, and I did not get to play it on this little journey we just had. So check that out at bluegrasssituation.com. I wanted to thank everybody for uh, sticking with me as our fourth season commenced. Our Bahamas episode last week has been one of our most listened to shows ever. And uh, someone left a review in August of last year that I want to give a little shout out to. Her name is Lorraine, and it says, I love being introduced to new musicians as well as visiting with some of my musical heroes. This show gets down to it with thoughtful questions and the ability to listen to the answers. Thank you, Lil Rainey. And if you can, please go on our iTunes, give it a friendly review. It helps us get seen by new listeners. And if you want to sponsor the show or contribute to our little program, znlupitan at gmail.com. That's our PayPal, and you can give right now to keep us going. Make sure you come back every Wednesday. We have new episodes and new albums to share with you, including Strawberry Mansion, the new record by Langhorn Slim. And also I talked to Jeremiah Freights all the way in Italy. He's the wonderful drummer of the Lumineers. You might have noticed that there's some sonic blips and bloops on this last episode. It's because Alabama and California are kind of far away from each other, and we had to do some editing hijinks just to get our conversation to really work. So thank you for bearing with us. As always, The Show on the Road is written, edited, and produced by yours truly, Zach Lupitan, and is part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, stay creative, and we'll see you on the trail. Hey music fans, we wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy.